Welcome to Good Dudes Grow, the podcast that explores the remarkable journey of Aaron, a Navy chief turned Army EOD expert, navigating the depths of mental health and demonstrating incredible resilience. From honing his culinary skills in Italy to feeling compelled to join the fight against the war in the Middle East, Aaron's path took an unexpected turn. Join us as we dive into Aaron's story of overcoming adversity, finding strength in the face of trauma, uncovering the transformative power of mental health and resilience. Get ready to be inspired by the incredible journey of growth and healing. This is Good Dudes Grow, where the human spirit thrives. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Good Dudes Grow 2.0. On the Good Dudes Grow 2.0, we're here to let you know the importance of plant-based medicine and psychedelics on mental and physical health. We're bringing you stories of how these medicines have changed lives and can save lives. We want to teach you the healing power of plant-based medicine. This is the Good Dudes Grow 2.0. Back to you, Good Dudes Grow 2.0. I'm your host, Gary Roberts. Once again, I have an amazing guest. It's actually quite an honor to have him on my show. Mr. Aaron Hell. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on, Gary. <laughs> I forgot to ask you at the beginning uh, if the camera was squared away and if my prosthetics were pointed in the same direction. You're, you look absolutely perfect. Body check. <laughs> For, for most of the people who don't know, Aaron is actually a uh, military personnel who actually worked in the uh, explosive ordnance disposal uh, team. He started by going to the Navy first and kind of kind of like uh, I did, decided to change into something a little more, I guess, exciting because it seemed a little bit more exciting. And I guess he goes where danger goes, and that's where, where I, I like to go. But unfortunately, uh, during his tour in Afghanistan, a uh, IED exploded in his face and he uh, lost his eyesight as well as his did you lose your hearing at the same time, or did it come that come a little bit later? I lost some of my hearing during the blast, of course, but no, it wasn't until four years later when there were complications from the the, the injury when I uh, I contracted meningitis, bacterial meningitis, and that stole what was left of the hearing and took my vestibular balance, my inner ear gyro. So. That's there were two separate but connected incidents. Well, well, thanks for coming to the show. Why don't so I don't destroy you know how how your story actually happened. Tell us a little bit about your story and about yourself first of all, and who uh, Aaron Hale is. Sure, I grew up in uh, Northeast Ohio and loved loved my life and growing up and had a great uh, childhood, but I wasn't very ambitious. Uh, and didn't didn't have much of a work ethic. So when I got to college, uh, all those those people who knew how to work hard passed me by really quickly. Before I knew it, I was out of tuition money and out uh, on my ear uh, uh, from from school without a degree to show for it. And I needed a I needed a new course. I needed you know those internal values, those personal you know, skills and you know, skill set that I just didn't didn't possess. So I turned to the military and I love to cook uh, my whole life. My whole family is very creative, very artistic. Uh, but, you know, my artistic nature led me to the kitchen. And I love to cook. So I decided I would see the world, let the adventure begin. 
And while I was doing that, I'd be a cook in the Navy. And I did that. I joined the Navy in 1999, immediately got stationed in Italy, and they put me in the barracks as like working. They, they kind of the Navy at the time looked at cooks in the Navy as hotel restaurant management. So I didn't even get to cook. <laughs> I was, just, I was uh, the night desk clerk for a while, paying my FNG uh, dues. Uh, the late shift, handing out uh, towels and taking in trouble call tickets. But I worked my way up to cooking for the three-star admiral, the commander of the 6th Fleet in Gaeta, Italy. And my next PCS, my next duty station, it's only 45 minutes away on board the flagship. So that was fantastic. Got to cruise around the Mediterranean and to see all these amazing countries, taste all this incredible cuisine, hardship duty, it was not, but this led me up to about 2004 when all of a sudden, since I joined in a, a time of peace, all of a sudden I found myself uh, in the military overseas with two operations going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I was still just watching the wars play out on the television. Yes, everybody has you know, a role to play in the military, but I'd gotten those internal skills. Over the last, uh, you know, the previous five years or so, I'd been uh, advanced, promoted beyond my peer set. I was, I was gaining a rank and responsibility. I was really uh, feeling, you know, it was, it was really coming into my own. And I realized that uh, even though I love cooking, it wasn't a career path for me. I was passionate about it, but I knew my, my abilities, my talents and skills, I, it could be better used in a different capacity. So I volunteered to go to deploy to the desert. The only thing is I was still a cook, so they put me in the chow hall, a defect. <laughs> I went from cooking for the admiral as top brass to cooking for hundreds of ISAF, NATO troops, and the, the, the for Afghanistan, the desert of Afghanistan. And funny enough, there were a couple of platoons of Italian special forces right there. So I got to practice the lingo I learned in Italy, down in Afghanistan. <laughs> but that's when I met some EOD techs. And... Uh, learned all about the, the dangerous but uh, incredible job EOD technicians do. They're first responders on the battlefield, and every single thing about it uh, told me this is what I was meant to do. So, excuse me, I, uh, I put in a request to go to the Navy, you know, through the, the Navy system to become an EOD technician. Uh, I was denied. It just my rank and job in the military, in the Navy, was undermanned. So not only were they not going to let me change jobs, they weren't going to promote me anytime soon. Uh, that's just the, the needs of the Navy. Uh, but my, when my deployment was up, my contract was coming to an end. And I decided that even though I loved my service in the Navy, 
and I love being a sailor. I, I knew what I needed to do it was become an EOD technician. So I went over to the army recruiter and I switched uniforms, got trained up as an EOD tech and I got to keep my rank, just change job titles. And before I knew it, it was deployed to Iraq. And then again, in 2011 to Afghanistan, this time in a completely different role. Well, that, that's, that's interesting. That's, so, so for a couple of things, first of all, you, so you went from a, a, a non-ambitious, no drive individual to visiting the world, cooking for a high, high end admiral cooking. Actually, you know, the best place to actually go is go to uh, Italy to learn because I'm sure the food's there for is incredible in the first place. So talk about the first place to go. And then you know, all it takes for somebody to do incredible things is a good reason, <laughs> a good purpose. Uh, I found purpose in the military in service. And then uh, I found a deeper purpose in saving lives. And he thrived. And he thrived. You thrived in the military service. And, and then you went, you found another calling in the military service, which was an EOD uh, technician. And you thrive, you kind of thrived in, in that. And that, that itself is just, just incredible going from, you know, from one, one thing to the next thing like that and finding, finding your, your, your what and why in, in, you know, in the service. Well, let me ask you, this is probably going to be a, a weird question, but did, uh, when you went from the Navy over to the army, did the army guy kind of like get a little, you know, excited saying, all right, we got a Navy guy, you know, cause they're always playing each other against each other. So, you know, like, like in football, there's always a rivalry. Did they say, okay, we, we got one of their guys back on our side. <laughs> I'm always conflicted during the army Navy game. <laughs> Uh, the truth is, while I, I absolutely love my, my time as a soldier as well as a sailor, uh, I went through, it was a pilot program at the time, it was called the Warrior Transition Course in the Army. And it was kind of like a gentleman's course version of basic training for prior service enlisted. So I, not a, none of the indoctrination and dogma type stuff, okay, no breaking you down to build you back up. It was all of the educational and physical training, but it was a, it was a shortened course so long as you, you fit the, the, the standards. So I, w I didn't have the Navy beaten out of me. I was a, I was a sailor in an Army suit. Yeah, and I, I I still do really do love, and perhaps I I feel like a a, a sailor at heart because that was my first, you know, first military love, right? Uh, and then when I went to the EOD school, all of the branches trained together, and you know how each branch kind of speaks a different language. Right. That was that was the whole this major purpose, the major reason behind all the branches going and eat, learning EOD at the same place and together. And so they all speak the same language. They all do the, you know, they, they know how to do the same job the same way. We all have, each branch has a different, slightly different, but overlapping uh, purpose or mission on the battlefield. However, we can 
we all can, I can be paired together with a Marine or a Navy or an Air Force EOD technician, and we can go right to work immediately. It would work together very seamlessly. And that's the whole reason. So I kind of went from sailor to EOD tech. Interesting. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I did not know that, you know, but that, I, could, I could see how that could benefit the whole the military itself. They're all working on, on the same page like that. So, so, you, you're in a, so you get to Afghanistan. Were you doing a lot of EOT tech before the accident? Was it, was it you know, was it, you know, were you been in it for a while before the accident? How did, how did the accident come up? Was it a... Oh, I am. Uh, this was my second deployment as an EOD technician and my uh, first as a team leader. It's the, the Army in general uh, makes, makes it, EOD teams are made up of three, three people, three personnel, two team members and a team leader. And the team leader is the most experienced and, you know, the you know, highest ranking one on the team. And that's the one who gets in the suit and makes that, that long, lonely walk towards the danger. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, you want the most experienced person doing that job. And for eight months out of a 12 month deployment, my team and the rest of my, uh, the rest of the teams in my company were busy across the, the AO. Uh, we were in the Kandahar province, which is a raid district. And my team was in the town, the village of Siachoy. And I found out that this was the birthplace of the Taliban. And Siachoy, I found it from a turp, was tra translates to cemetery. So it, was, it kind of felt like we were living in tombstone. But uh, we were busy all the time. It was the same thing, pressure plates with uh, uh, milk or an oil jug full of homemade explosives. And we're just running them over and over and over again, all, uh, for, for all year long. I let the rest of the team do their two weeks of R&R. &R, and I waited until almost, you yeah, know, it was about eight and a half months into the deployment when I took my two weeks back in the United States. I got to see my firstborn turn one. Got to witness the whole family get together for Thanksgiving. It was just a fantastic last page in the photo. Nice. I came back from my two weeks and got right back to work. In fact, my team had picked me up in our our jerk, our armored truck, and we jumped into a supply convoy just to head back to Sea uh, Choi to to get back to work. When you know the uh, the, uh, the patrol leader called back and said, you know, EOD, we've got something on the side of the road. We need you to take a look at, it. and got to work. It was just like. Everything else was a milk. It was a uh, oil jug and a uh, pressure plate. The robot took care of most of the business there, but I had to jump out and uh, get as much evidence as I safely could so that we could send that up through the different you know, channels and try getting what we call left of the bang. You know, timeline before the boom. Right. So I wanted to get this evidence. 
as I was ap approaching, there was a secondary device that uh, hadn't yet been detected. Nothing punted me into the air. I landed on my knees and elbows. I was still conscious. I don't know how lucid I was. I just had my bell rung. But the lights had gone out. <laughs> and uh, I'd, I thought that my helmet had gotten pushed over my face. But uh, it still did the, the, the functions check. Wiggle fingers, toes, elbows, knees, all that. And it seemed like everything was still intact. And I was still in the fight. And that's what I thought. There was going to be a fight. Maybe one of those ambushes with a small arms fire right after. And my team, their job after a team leader goes down is to clear the way back into the, uh, the dangerous area so the medics could treat me and get me out of there. So I didn't want any of that to happen. I didn't want anybody to have to wait on me. So I got up and I started walking back towards the truck. The only problem was I had no idea where that thing was. I was blind. I mean, it was dark. And I didn't know yet that I was blind. Uh, I got up and I reached to fix my helmet. And it was gone. My helmet wasn't even on my head. And that's where I thought, oh, no. This is bad. My CEO is going to kill me for losing that thing. <laughs> the, the first thought of every one of us was something like that, was something bad happens to us is like losing a piece of equipment or it's not about us. It's always like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get in so much trouble for losing that helmet. <laughs> I'm going to get it handed to me losing that helmet. <laughs> but uh, I was just walking around aimlessly on the battlefield. My team, team members grabbed me, dragged me back. And within 14 minutes, I was automatic chopper and went back to Kandahar. And within 48 hours, I was in Bethesda. Wow. So, so you get to Bethesda. Here's the, the mental aspect that I wanted to get into and I apologize, but brings back any bad memories. So they, they, they tell you, you, you basically lose your sight, correct? What, what goes through your mind first? What, what is it that, you know, what, what, how do you channel from being, like you said in the beginning of the show, from you know, no ambition, no, no nothing to all of a sudden you lost your sight and you're not sure where you're going to go from there. How, how, how did, what, what was your first kind of reaction, if you don't mind me asking? Well, the first thing that goes through my mind was blast over pressure. Uh, fine. <laughs> I, it, you know, the, frankly, it was it was just so much going on from the medevac choppers and, and uh, the medical flights overseas. And no kidding, I'm pretty sure Tom Cruise shook my hand <laughs> in the flight line at, at Landstuhl. Uh, I thought somebody was messing with me, but apparently he, he really was like promoting, oh, using Europe, promoting um, his latest Mission Impossible. And they asked me, do you want to, want to make Tom Cruise? I'm like, what? Anyways, uh, so much going on. I get to Walter Reed, and it's doctors and nurses and uh, technicians, surgeries. There are, you know, the Army and administrative and paperwork stuff. And there are veteran service organization volunteers coming in and asking me if I need anything. I have no idea. 
And there, it's the Beltway, so there are dignitaries and uh, elected officials coming and going and shaking hands. And it was close to uh, Christmas and the holidays. There was so much going on that I didn't really have a whole lot of time to sit and contemplate life. But eventually it did get quiet and I get into my, my head and those, those what ifs, the why me's, they call them my, my demons, right? They're always trying to get at me. They're always in the background. They were definitely pretty loud then. I, I was angry. I was angry at myself. I was angry at, you know, the military, the president. I was angry at the Taliban. Angry at, you know, like, I angered everything and everybody. And I was just, you know, among the members of the, the elite EOD community, you know, some of the best bomb disposal technicians in, in the entire world. And we had all this equipment, all this training, and I was defeated by caveman rudimentary sticks and wires, you know? Right. And I was sitting there in, in, in that, that hospital bed. It, it, I was thinking about it. Like, what, what's, the, what's the alternative? You know, you've got choices. I always have choices. What are my choices? I could be pissed off for the rest of my life and I could quit or something else, right? What else? And the fact is that I was still, at the time and now, I'm still a soldier. I'm still an EOD tech. I'm still a father, a son, a husband, and brother. And I have all these roles, all these responsibilities, people I'm responsible to. And there are all these other warriors up and down the hallways. They're dealing with their own issues. They're fighting their own battles. And who am I to say mine is better or worse or how much, you know, more difficult my battle's going to be? I can't quit. So my alternative was to go on. And if I was going to have to, if I was going to go on, I was going to do it like I did everything else as best I could. So if I was going to be a blind man, I was going to be the best blind me I possibly could. And that's what I got. I got to work. I got busy. What was the first thing you did? So, so I, I read a little bit about it. Uh, you were also kind of meeting your soulmate at the same time. What, what was the first thing you says? You know what? To be the best blind man I'm going to be, I'm going to do what? Well, I had to just learn all over how to live, how to do simple, basic things. But I mean, after after uh, Walter Reed, uh, I went to a hospital in Tampa. Uh, but after they, I'd been repaired the best they could. Uh, there really wasn't besides besides me losing my eyes. And having my, 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 my skull was actually cracked, so I was, I was leaking spinal fluid out my nose. But, you know, they patched me up the best I could. I had both my eardrums blown out, but uh, the eardrums can heal on their own. Uh, or you can get a surgery, a tympanoplasty to cover that up. But frankly, there wasn't a whole lot for me at Walter Reed. And if, and in a few months, maybe two and a half months or so, I was in 
I was an inpatient at the VA hospital in Augusta, Georgia, but as a student at the Blind Rehabilitation Center. They've got about, I think it's 14 blind schools around the United States. I went to the one in Augusta. And that's where I learned how to use the cane, to, to use the accessible devices, talking phone, talking computers. And as soon as I could get on the internet, I started searching for blind plus running, blind plus outdoors, blind plus hiking. I don't know, anything to keep me from being stuck on the couch. It was, it was really part that positive responsibility type thing. It was part terror, sheer, absolute fear of being trapped by my, by my condition, by my disabilities. So I just started looking up uh, who's already doing it. What's, what's possible? Instead of, I can't do this, how can I do it? And a few names kept popping up, like Eric Weinmayer, the first blind person to uh, climb Mount Everest. Lonnie Bedwell, first blind person to kayak the entire Grand Canyon. And actually, Lonnie is just coming off, coming down from Everest. He, I think, is blind person number five or six now to climb Everest. And I sought these guys out. I found out that there were a handful of active duty army soldiers that were blind. Uh, this army ranger, Ivan Castro, was working for Special Operations Recruiting Branch at Bragg. And I just, I, I, I found him. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, had, I started running, which wasn't, wasn't really my thing, you know, run to stay fit, but not really for fun. Yeah. I, I know how you feel. <laughs> but I was, I was seeking these guys out when kayaking with Lonnie. Uh, I, I'd gotten invited to go on a, uh, a mountain climbing expedition to the Peruvian Andes with a team of 10 wounded veterans and Eric Weinmayer. And so I, it's really hard to find a decent mountain to train on in Florida. So okay. when I was talking to Ivan Castro, he said he said he made it a point every year to uh, run the Air Force uh, marathon, the Army Ten Miler, and the Marine Corps marathon. And me, I was in this mindset. I'm going to say yes to everything, like the yes man. Movie. You know, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to try everything. So I register for all three of those. Somebody got somehow I got talked into the Pensacola Marathon and the San Antonio uh, Marathon. And so before I knew it, I was registered for four marathons and a ten miler, all within the span of four months. And I'd never run anything longer than a ten k. Uh, just, you know, bit off way more than I could chew and then just start gnawing like heck. So, yeah. so, so, so how, for, how does a, a blind individual actually train to run a marathon? So, uh, listen, uh, so, you know, I, I don't know if you know, but I'm in Florida too. I've been, I work for the city of Fort Lauderdale as their, their hazmat tech and everything else. And I do a lot of, a lot of, I work out a lot. I do a lot of CrossFit. Running's not my forte. I keep telling, I keep telling everybody basically, it's kind of like swimming for me. I don't, I don't glide through the water. 
I displace stuff. I didn't, you know, things just get in the way. <laughs> By the way, I did CrossFit once. I hurt for a week. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was beyond, that was beyond like lactic buildup into uh, just screaming, can't move pain. <laughs> exactly. But I, I've never done a marathon. I've done a, a sprint triathlon. It, that, that didn't end very well. But, but how do, being blind, I can't imagine. Well, how do you train for something, you know, that, you know, for, for that long or for that many marathons? How does? Well, first thing was I'd never run a marathon before. So I found a coach. But I'd already started running um, with, with local friends. And it's, it's actually pretty simple, pretty straightforward. You, you, there are different methods, but the method I use is uh, you find a tether. And something simple that both you and your guide uh, hold on to. I actually started off with a dog, a tug-of-war rope. I would hold a knot. My guide would hold a knot. And I'd just follow wherever that rope was going. And just like a leash, you know, my, 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 my sighted guide, my running partner, would just ride, you know, would run shoulder to shoulder with me. And that's, it's really simple. Now, it takes a whole lot of trust. Right. But thankfully, through the military, yeah, I was, I was, I was pretty comfortable you know, putting my trust, my life in somebody else's hand and stepping out into the unknown. It, uh, of course, we learned pretty quickly that those tug-of-war ropes get kind of sticky. Sticky. <laughs> yeah, so we found just a piece of nylon webbing, like, you know, backpack strap. And right. I now have... You know, a loop that's about big enough for three fingers, and I slide mine in one, and my guide has his, and we can do our best at uh, natural arm swing. Then it's just communication. I've run uh, quite a few marathons now and got into ultra marathons, and today I'm training for uh, Badwater 135. It's 135 miles across Death Valley. So, um, I've, I've heard about that from, uh, um, Goggins book that his, his bad water, uh, venture that he had when he was having some physical issues, not, not as physical as yours, but <laughs> again, I, I have no doubt that you're going to complete it as it, you know, you've already completed all the other marathons. You've already done a hundred mile ultra marathon. You've done more than one. If I'm, if I'm correct, correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, done three 100 milers. So, you know, it, 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 how, how did the military prepare you mentally to, you know, to do these events, to actually, you know, say you're going to do, you're going to do this, you know, is it, do you follow on, on, on that type of training? Is it something new you're finding? Is it, is it, is that the challenge itself? How, how mentally do you say, you know what, I want to go for this next challenge, no matter what? I, I'm not sure where the, it started or the mindset really came from, but the military definitely uh, helped me prepare for resilience. Uh, you can be, you know, let's think about the heat and exhaustion that you know, our service members feel on those dismounted patrols in the middle of the desert. And you're thirsty, tired, sweaty, you're carrying way too much weight, and you've got too far to keep to go still. And all you want to do 
is get into the air-conditioned hooch, uh, drink a rip it or something, and watch TV. But still, you got to keep going. And there's no quit. There's no, oh, I'm getting it done later. So you just keep going. And that just translated into these ultra marathons where my sheet would be blistering, you know, body, you know, different body parts are chafing, I'm tired and sweaty and hungry and just want to lay down and kick my feet up. And, but I've got miles to go. So I just put one foot in the other, you know, in front of the other. And I just keep going. So I know there's a finish line. I know there's a, you know, a good outcome if I just keep going. And I don't worry about the top of the, you know, the top of the mountain. I don't worry about the finish line. I worry about the next five minutes, you know, the next hundred yards. I just take smaller bites of that elephant. Right. Right. I, I understand exactly where you're coming from that. That's, you know, small little goals keep giving you those small wins turn into large victories as, as you go down when you're doing something difficult. This, the training that you, you, you've done uh, in the military, uh, the mental aspect that you've done uh, of trying these new, you know, these, these or what, what other people would say unattainable uh, feats, especially I, it's like I would never run a hundred miles. I would just, you know, I'd probably not be able to move for years after that. So I am, I am totally respectful, you know, hundred percent respect for what you're doing, but on that aspect, but that just didn't lead in, into sports. That led into an entrepreneurial side that, you, that you're also doing. Is that correct? You've built a couple of companies. Tell us a little bit more about that. How that mentality of the military, the the continue of don't stop with sports has led you into finding, you know, your joy in, in building different businesses. Well, you know, Mike, I lost my eyesight in 2011. And I got patched up and I learned how to be blind. And I started doing the mountains and the kayaking, the running. And for about four years, I was, I was, I was doing pretty well. I was feeling pretty good. In fact, I was doing more things in the last few years than I'd even considered before going blind. I started speaking and I was just taking these adventures. And then in uh, the summer of 2015, I contracted bacterial meningitis uh, the, the, the cracks in my skull that I thought were patched, but I either reopened or uh, weren't fully patched in the beginning. Uh, I went, was right back in the hospital and uh, I survived. It nearly killed me, but uh, in the process, it still was left in my hearing leaving me completely deaf. So the, when the doctor broke the news to me, it's doc, what you're saying is I'm going to be 100% blind and 100% deaf. You're telling me I'm never going to have to pretend to pay attention ever again? Because <laughs> um, it's all lighting and everything. But no, the truth is, you know, I was right back in that, that awful place, right? Right. And for months, I mean, there was be a chance that I could regain my hearing with the implant, but it took so long, excruciating long. And in the meantime, I was, I was, I was trapped in my body. It was silent. It was dark. 
no messages could come out or I couldn't get in. I could definitely still talk. But um, my girlfriend at the time, my wife you know, was writing every single letter of every single word she needed to say to me in the palm of my hand. And that's tedious and frustrating. But that was the only way I could get messages at. Um, again, it was the holidays were coming up. And again, instead of saying, uh, why me? And, you know, focusing on, uh, you know, what I can't do or, yeah, what was, was going through my head was really like, when, when have I paid my dues? Right. You know, when does it have, you know, why does it have to be me again? I, uh, when have I had enough? Instead, I turned my focus around. Because not only did I, I lose my eyesight and my hearing, but I also lost uh, my vestibular balance, the inner ear, the iru. So I couldn't even get on my treadmill. But if I held on real tight to the countertop, I could cook still, just muscle memory. And I started preparing for Thanksgiving. In fact, I overdid it quite a bit. I started, <laughs> I started weeks in advance and started making all these desserts and just putting them in the freezer, you know, cakes and pies and cookies and stuff. And I started making batch after batch of fudge. And then um, and Mi Michaela, my wife, said she noticed two things. Uh, one was a smile on my face. She hadn't seen for like six months. And she noticed that the fudge was piling up. And was, <laughs> she was sneaking some out the front door. You don't really have to be too stealthy around a blind deaf guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, people just started coming back and asking if they could buy some. And the capitalist in me said, well, of course you may. And EODfudge.com was born. At this time, EOD standing for Extraordinary Delights. And I started a fudge company. And uh, I, from pouring my passion into Thanksgiving, so I'm pouring my passion into sharing uh, my creations with others. And then uh, we started this business. Yeah, we started a family. Yeah, uh, now we have three boys, uh, including four-year-old identical twin boys, uh, identical because I shouldn't be the only one that's confused. <laughs> and, uh, I started, I started running and got back on the treadmill and I would hold on with this iron grip as I just hit the quick start in half a mile an hour. And I just walk. Uh, I was taking, I took the tread or the, uh, trekking poles that I once, you know, hiked into the mountains with. Right. And I would just use those to get out to the mailbox and back. It would be exhausting. But I just kept pushing myself a little bit more each day. The speed on the treadmill, you know, a distance with the trekking poles. And eventually I was back to jogging. And within a year, uh, I, I ran my first marathon back after the meningitis. And it was my uh, hometown, Akron, Ohio, marathon same week as my 20th high school reunion so i went home and took my my girlfriend with me and went to my 
uh, high school reunion and ran my fastest marathon ever. Nice. And uh, it just kind of kind of kept going. We we turned, uh, you know, we turned the, the the fudge business into something that was really generating some income. We took that income. We started investing in real estate. I did more speaking events, and now we have a, a, a real estate investment company. And my wife is, and you know, a, a licensed agent in the Florida Panhandle. We partnered with a fellow wounded veteran for, uh, you know, doing it basically uh, real estate acquisitions in. Um, Pensacola and just, yeah, just trying to, again, keep my butt off the couch. Right. Such and a, of course, recently started, started a podcast. Such an, uh, an amazing story. And, and it shows, you know, how having not always looking of, like you said, what you can't do, but always having those little those little wins, like the same little wins you had when you first started your first marathon before the meningitis. He went back to those little wins and those little wins turn it again to a, to huge victories. That, that is basically the moral of the story is there's always a way out. Sometimes you just got to figure out that little win to give you that, that little insight to try and do something different. What advice would you give to others? Let's say entrepreneurs, wounded veterans, or, or our listeners who are actually wondering if they can actually take that step for themselves that, you know, that they, they see, they want to do this, this bigger goal, but they're unsure. They're, they're, they're afraid. They're, they, they don't, they don't think they'll be able to go through, you know, go through it, go through with it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, forgive the pun. It's the way you look at it, your perspective. <laughs> uh, it's how you frame things. All right, you know the, the the saying: whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. Well, it's true. In, in fact, it, the, the power of our minds is incredibly strong. It, we have the ability to actually change our own neural pathways just by thinking about the right things and thinking less of the things we don't need to think about. And on a daily basis, I try to remember what I'm grateful for. And I try to look forward to all the great things life has to you know, offer and the amazing things that I can accomplish. I, I try to plan, you know, I, try, I set goals. And just that simple act of thinking about it puts me in a more receptive uh, frame of mind. So I believe I can, and then I can, rather than saying, well, I can't do that. That's, that's incredible. If people, if our, my listeners wanted to follow you on your, in your journey, on your, your next adventures, how could they follow you? You have, social, you have a couple of social media handles, do you not? Well, no, of course you can, you can find me uh, at, uh, Pointofimpactpod.com and follow the podcast on on Apple and uh, all of those where I'll be sharing every week. And there's it's at A Clay Hale on 
Facebook, uh, Instagram. Not real big on photos and videos yet. <laughs> We're learning. Uh, and then, of course, you can find a little more of a story and a short video about it on uh, eodfudge.com. Incredible. Well, we're going to have those links in the show notes. Uh, Aaron, I appreciate you being on my show. Again, once again, I'm honored. Thank you for your service. And you are truly an incredible person. From an, inspiration, from an inspirational point, listen, you know, I could still, I could see, I could hear, you know, and everything that you're doing, I try to do even without any of the disabilities you have. So inspirationally, you know, you're an inspiration. I'm definitely going to follow your where you're going and what you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate that. And um, it was an honor and pleasure to, to speak with you today. Thank you for inviting me on. Definitely. You have a great day and we'll definitely stay in touch. Good Dudes Grow 2.0. Thank you for tuning in. If you're still listening to this, that means you gained something out of this episode. So make sure you share it with a friend, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode of The Good Dudes Grow 2.0.